Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. Greetings and welcome back to the program again this week. I, I trust that you are not getting weary with me uh, really exhausting this subject on Roadmap to Reformation. For me, it's been an incredible study to take a look at the 12 gates of Nehemiah and show how they speak of entrances into something that God is doing uh, in Reformation in this hour. This has been an incredibly prophetic uh, word to me and I believe to the body of Christ. And we are going to, uh, in this series, begin talking about the Mifkad gate, which is the final gate or the gate of inspection. And we're going to talk about that probably over the next couple of weeks and try to bring some conclusion to the series that we've been doing on Nehemiah Ezra, which has been almost 50 weeks long. I trust you've been blessed by it, and your remarks and your letters and your correspondence uh, are greatly encouraged, and uh, we appreciate it because it lets us know what you are hearing. If you just tuned in today for the first time, and uh, you think, well, this sounds like a really, really interesting story and series. I wished I would have uh, had opportunity to see the rest of them. For you, I've got good news. Uh, This series, uh, every time we uh, air a program, we upload it to our YouTube channel so that you can watch it on demand. You can pause it. uh, You can uh, take notes. You can use them in your home groups. You can use them in your uh, Wednesday evening Bible studies if you'd like. We're just glad to put them out there for you. We've done a great deal of work on this powerful series, and I probably need to write a book about it, but it it is available to go back and and watch again on YouTube. Also, if you you don't have YouTube, but you like to redeem the time while you're in your automobile driving to work, or if you're like me, when I'm on my mower, I like to listen to podcasts. Let me encourage you that we do have a podcast with the audio versions of this, and uh, you can go to my website, and on the upper right-hand corner, there is a direct link to the YouTube channel and to the podcast, and there's also a place there where you can click for Android devices for an RSS feed. All of that is available at no charge to you, and if you sign up, uh, when you go there to those uh, outlets to, to listen, if you subscribe to them, absolutely free of charge, you will be notified every time we upload a new one. So I encourage you to do that. The easiest way to do it is to uh, go to my website, which you'll see uh, the link on the uh, screen here, and you can go there. And of course, a whole listing of all of our products and books and CDs and series are all there uh, for for your pleasure. Uh, I want to get into the Word this morning. We're going to talk about the Mifkad gate. This is the twelfth gate. We have went through the gates of Nehemiah and the progression in which I believe, first of all, Nehemiah saw them. And uh, as he came through and they began to build, you know, the Word that the Lord put in my spirit for this whole uh, series was, Arise and let us build. And I believe that if there's anything God is saying to the church in this hour, it is time to arise and build. I don't believe it is a time of digression. I believe it is a time that we need to move forward 
and 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 build something in the earth that's redemptive. I cannot help but think, but the prophet Isaiah, who said, "Your walls shall be called salvation, and your gates shall be called praise." And uh, you know, the, the walls of the uh, of the of the city of God that are being built today. And you know, we if you've watched us for any length of time on this program, you know that when I'm talking about the city of God and the restoration of Jerusalem, it is a pattern or a picture of what God is doing to reform and rebuild the community of faith, the spiritual city of God, and the spiritual temple of God. That, that, that project began with Jesus, who was the chief cornerstone. And, uh, you know, I don't have time to go back and review all of that, but, you know, Zechariah said that the cornerstone and the capstone would be laid with shouts of grace, grace to it. And the only place there's a double enunciation of grace that I can think of off the top of my head is in John's gospel where he said, Moses gave you the law, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ and of His fullness of all we received in grace for grace. And the chief cornerstone was laid 2,000 years ago. And as you progressively see Him as the chief cornerstone. See, the emphasis has got to be in our ministries of the centrality of the key figure of all of this, which is none other than Jesus Christ. All of these prophets that worked with Ezra and Nehemiah in the rebuilding of the city, all of them pointed to a greater fulfillment. Uh, In other words, there was absolutely a literal fulfillment of them rebuilding the city and rebuilding the temple under Ezra and Nehemiah. But all of these prophets, when they would prophesy, would speak of a greater fulfillment, and especially with Zechariah, who continually would prophesy encouragement to the people, but his prophetic word would reach way beyond just what was happening to them, and it would reach into the day of Jesus when he would say things like in Zechariah, uh, you will find, a, behold, your king comes to you riding on a colt, the foal of an ass. And then Jesus fulfills that on Palm Sunday and, and literally says that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, that uh, behold, your king comes to you. And then later on in the, in, in the book of Zechariah, he talks about the man whose name is called the branch. We know that Jesus is the man whose name is called the branch. We find later in the book of Zechariah where he talks about what will you give me to buy me out of the covenant? And they weighed out for me 30 pieces of silver, which was the price of a slave. And we know that happened with Judas. And again, it would say, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. So this reformation began with Jesus and continues uh, throughout history as we see the city of God in Revelation chapter 21 is coming down from God out of heaven. It's not us going up to the city. It's the city coming down from God as a bride adorned for her husband. We know that the bride, of course, is not a place. It's a people. We also know that the tabernacle of God in uh, Revelation 21, he said, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Uh, The Message Bible translates it like this. It says, Look, look, God has moved into the neighborhood. He made His home in men. So what we're showing you is that What God has in mind is not just getting us from here to there, but He's interested in getting what's happening there to operate here. If Revelation 21 and the full restoration of the city 
is a picture of heaven, then something's wrong with this picture. Because when you get to Revelation 21 and 22, outside the city are dogs and whoremongers and whoever loves and makes a lie. The good news is the gates of the city, and we're talking about the gates, like the sheep gate. There's only one way into the sheepfold, and that's through Jesus. There's only one way. I mean, John 10, I, I am the door, and I am the shepherd of the sheep, and to me the porter openeth. So there's only one way in, but those gates are never shut. And also you see later in the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and 22, when it's talking about the city of God, that the city of God, once again, is not a place, it is a people. I think I've established that well. Over, It is the new covenant community of faith that's built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being chief cornerstone. As I was looking at the walls yesterday and studying some, there were timbers that were used and stones that were used. When I think about timbers, I think about the wood of the cross. When I, when I think about the foundation of the city in Revelation 12, it had the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. In other words, the city of God is built upon apostolic foundation. That's not literal concrete and mortar. That's the doctrine of the apostles. And I believe there, we are in an hour when we are coming back again to Reformation. And uh, as I shared way back in this series, every time there was a pandemic down through history, there was a piece of Reformation that was added back to the church. And so, uh, you know, as I, as I look at those powerful things and I see that once the city is completed and built, that it, it has a river that runs out of it. And that river is a river of life and it, it produces a tree. And this tree is on both sides of the river. It's called the tree of life. And the tree of life has on it leaves that are for the healing of the nations. That tells me this is not just when you get to heaven, it's for the, the purpose of the community of faith and the city of God, that the city of God is not over somewhere in the Middle East. The city of God is the new covenant community of faith, and I shared with you in the last four segments or so how that Galatians 4 says that these two women represent two covenants, and that, uh, that Hagar is Mount Sinai and Arabia and corresponds with the present natural Jerusalem. But the Jerusalem which is above, the Messianic kingdom of Christ, is our mother and those of us who were born by supernatural birth. And then the writer of Hebrews talks about the contrast between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And he says in 12 of Hebrews, you did not come to blackness and darkness, you did not come to fear and trembling. You did not come to a God who said, if you touch the edge of the mountain, you'll be thrust through with the dark. But you are come. You are come. You are not coming there. Abraham and, and Hebrews 11 was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God, but they discovered it in Hebrews 12. For he said, for you are come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and to the innumerable company of angels and to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn, which is written in heaven, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant. So that heavenly Zion, that heavenly Jerusalem, is the new covenant community of faith. Remember again that Revelation, I believe it is chapter 3, says, And to him who overcomes, I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven. He tells the overcomer they are the city of God. As I was looking yesterday, at Revelation chapter 21, I saw where he talked about the dimensions of the, of the uh, wall of the city. 
was 144,000 cubits. That's the exact number of those that were numbered of the first fruits from among men, and it speaks of the overcomer. In other words, there were uh, the word the, the Bible number 144,000 speaks of the overcomer, and so it connects it again to not just a place but a people. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone, but you and I together are lively stones that are fitly framed together to build a habitation of God through the Spirit. So that's the, uh, that's, that's the review we need to jump in here today. We're going to deal with the Mifkat gate, or the gate of inspection. And let me read the text to you from Nehemiah chapter 3, verses 31 and 32. This is from the New King James Version. It says, After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the Nethanim and of the merchants in front of the Mifkad gate, and as far as the upper room at the corner. And between the upper room at the corner and as far as the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. The final gate is called the gate of inspection, or the Mifkad gate, or the muster gate, or the gate of gathering. Now, the first thing that I want to say to you is that the gate of inspection, what it points to me of is uh, uh, something that I think that we need to take a look at is, let me, let me just go ahead and, and, and read a little bit more of this from my, my research. It was called the gate of inspection. It was called the Mifkad gate or the muster gate or the gate of gathering. The words appointed place in, the, in, in Hebrew is the word Mifkad, uh, or the, the appointed place. That's what the word Hebrew word in, uh, in uh, Mifkad means, is the appointed place. Mifkad comes from the verb pakwad, uh, which means to number. To, uh, the gate of the city that led to the appointed place was called the Mifkad gate. The Mifkad gate, referred to in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 31, was located on the east wall just north of the east gate leading into the temple. The Mifkad gate opened onto the road leading up to the Mount of Olives, just north of the place where the bodies were to be burned. The road led to the Mifkad, or a pointed place. Now, the bodies were burned, and these not were the bodies many times of the sacrifices of the offerings. And what I want to show before I go any further, I think, in this, is that the gate of inspection, especially as it relates to believers, is, uh, uh, is the place where I believe the Lamb is inspected. You know, one of the things that I teach quite a bit in, uh, in my teaching is, you know, Matthew, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them, of course, are in the New Testament, but much of it is talking about Old Covenant concepts. They are transitioning from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. So the Sermon on the Mount is probably one of the most transitional messages that you can uh, you can you can see because Jesus is doing you know uh, something there that I think is important. He is preaching the law to the scribes and Pharisees, unwatered down. You see, you know, people say to us, "Well, you know, what's going on right now is that uh, you guys are preaching this cheap grace." To which I respond, "Cheap grace is not the problem." cheap law is. Because what we've done, you know, I put a post on my Facebook page the other day where I said, sin will not have dominion over you 
because you are not under law, but under grace. But if you turn that around and you could say, sin will have dominion over you if you are under law and not under grace. But it goes on to say that, uh, you know, the grace of God is not what causes sin, it is the antidote for it. He said, you will, sin will not have dominion over you. Watch this, because you are not under law, but under grace. I believe this Mifkat gate is speaking of another place of gathering and another place where there must, where we muster together and we number the people. I'll get into that as we get a little bit further down here, but I want to just touch this thought today. When Jesus begins to teach the Sermon on the Mount, and He starts to preach the law unwatered down, once again, I think what has happened is we have preached cheap law. The scribes and Pharisees had watered it down to make it manageable. But really the law was given to unmask you, to let you realize that you need a Savior. Read Romans 1, 2, and 3. Don't just read little pieces and clips. We pull little pieces out that are our pet doctrines, but we don't realize that what he's doing in Romans 1, 2, and 3, and we may begin a study, our next uh, series may be just, I'm really considering doing an entire study on the book of Romans, because Romans 1, 2, and 3 is he is indicting everything and everybody, both Jewish insiders and Jewish outsiders, both Jew and Gentile. And by the time he's done naming sin for three chapters, what he has done is concluded that we're all, if you read it in the Message Bible especially, it puts it like this, we are all in the same sinking boat. There is none righteous, no, not even one. That the end of the law is that there's none righteous. Nobody makes it on the basis of the works of the law it was so that at some point we would realize we need a Savior and that it had to come by the hearing of faith. And if that, that's what Jesus is doing in Matthew chapter number 5 as He's uh, indicting everything. He starts out by saying to the people, if you don't have a righteousness, that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. You will in no wise enter the kingdom. And so uh, the, he tells them in, in the beginning of the Beat, you are blessed when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you will be filled. But he's talking about people who already think they're righteous on the basis of their performance under the law. But the law is not a ladder you climb to get God's favor. It's a wall you run into that lets you know you need a Savior. And so he's telling them, if you don't get hungry for righteousness, you're never going to be filled. And he starts down through there and he said, you have to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. That would be like saying to a Catholic, if you don't have a righteousness that exceeds the Pope, you're not going to enter the kingdom. And most people would walk away and say, well, then I'm out. I'm done. I'll never make it. But then Jesus doesn't just speak to the common people. He turns around to the, I call them the holy dudes, the religious guys who have watered the law down to create a hierarchy that shows you how much more superior I am in my holiness than you are. I thank God I'm not like that sinner. It's that mentality that comes through performance-based religion. If that's what your religion has made you feel like, perhaps you need a good shot of grace. But what Jesus does is begin to unmask these religious Pharisees who had their broad phylacteries and their long prayers for pretense and their, their verses strapped on their head, and they, they, they've gone through all the religious rituals. And He says to them, your law says, do not kill, but I say if you hate your brother, 
you're a killer. So he's not just talking about the act. He's talking about even if you have, uh, you know, ought against your brother. And he talks about if you say to your brother, you fool, you are in danger of the hell of fire. If you say to him, Rekha, and, and on, he goes, he talks about the escalation of what it is that produces murder in the heart. Then he talks about, he only uses two laws. And he looks at him and he says, if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart already. So what he has done is he's preached two commandments and everybody in the place is now finding that they are guilty of not, maybe perhaps they haven't done the act, but their hearts have never been transformed. See, see, law can change your behavior, but only grace can change your heart. And so as he begins to unpack that, he says to them, uh, you know, if your eye offends you, poke it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. And so he doesn't, he's not, you know, what we do is we, we want to spiritualize that part of it. But what Jesus is doing in Matthew chapter 5 is he is concluding that all are under sin, that nobody is making it on the basis of the law. And if that's not good enough, Matthew 5, I believe it is the very last verse, he puts the nail in the proverbial coffin when he says, but be ye therefore perfect. Not just do your best, try harder. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Don't be perfect like the Pharisees. Be perfect as God is perfect. That's the only thing that is acceptable, and that's what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 5 and the last verse. Be ye therefore perfect. Well, of course, what you're going to do is you're going to, anybody sitting here listening to me today will say, well, then I'm out. I certainly can't meet that criteria. But what you don't understand is that perfection in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, is based on something completely different. And I want to show you this because this is how it plays into the gate of inspection, because in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, he talks about the all being perfected, not on the basis of, uh, of your performance, but on the basis of the offering of the body of Christ. Well, my uh, iPad doesn't want to go there, but let me just quote for you. He said for, uh, uh, he goes on to say that for by one offering, he has sanctified, he were sanctified, Hebrews, the 10th chapter, we are sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So our sanctification is based on an offering. And then it goes on to say, by one offering, watch this, by one offering, He has perfected, perfected forever those that are sanctified. So if you were sanctified on the basis of an offering, then you're also, according to Hebrews 10, perfected, not on the basis of your performance, but on the basis of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And as I look at this gate of inspection, what I want to show you is that when the sin offering was offered in the Old Testament, which are patterns and pictures of redemption, the sinner would come before the high priest and he would bring a spotless lamb without spot or blemish before the high priest. He would then lay his hands on the head of that lamb and confess his sin over that lamb. Many times when I'm preaching this, I have someone come up and I'll, I'll have three people. I say, you're a lamb. 
you're the sinner and you're the high priest. And I have the sinner lay his hands on the head of the lamb because I do believe you've got to apply the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. There's a message out there now that kind of excludes all of that. I, I, I just don't believe that. I believe that you've got to lay your hands on the head of this lamb and identify. And when you confessed your sin, what you did was you laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then the high priest at the inspection gate and the place where they would burn the burnt sacrifice would inspect this lamb and they would inspect him from top to bottom and declare whether or not he was spotless lamb or not. But what I want you to see is this. This is the main point I want to make on this first one on the Mifkad gate, is that the sinner is never inspected. What we do in the American church every week is we inspect the sinner rather than inspecting the lamb. We got our focus on the wrong place. Your acceptance in the beloved is not based on how good you are. It's based on how good he is. And so this inspection is not an inspection so that you can uh, see how good you are and did you qualify or your work's good enough. This inspection was an inspected lamb. And of course, we know that Pilate examines the lamb, said this is innocent blood. Uh, even Judas himself, who the Bible calls a devil, had to say, I have betrayed innocent blood. Even the devil himself had to testify, his betrayer, that the blood of Jesus was innocent blood. And because it was, it was the ultimate sacrifice and Lamb of God. So when I think about the uh, the uh, Mifkat gate and the gate of inspection I, and the muster gate is that we were all called into Christ because when Jesus said this, he said, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. And this spake he concerning what death he would die. That's not a praise and worship scripture. So what the gathering this is speaking about is this gathering and this gate to me speaks of is the place where we were gathered into him and we were judged in Christ 2,000 years ago. It was the judgment gate. And I believe that's somewhat of what it means to stand before the judgment seat of Christ is that we must reckon His judgment was my judgment. And then as believers, we can come boldly in the day of judgment, knowing that as He is, so are we in this present world. And if He was perfected forever, then we've been perfected forever on the basis of a sacrifice. And uh, so I, I, I want you to see that this inspection gate is an inspection where you, where every man must be brought before this, this uh, cross of Christ and realize that his death was in fact my death. And so it was also the place of Golgotha, the place of the skull, where the sacrifice and the sin offering was burnt outside the camp. And I'm going to talk a good bit about Golgotha when we come back on another program. But we've just about run out of time. And I want to encourage you, we're out of time this segment. I want to encourage you to take a moment, though, and let us know if you're enjoying this. These are extremely difficult times, of course, you know, in ministry. But if you would like to see us continue doing this and you're being blessed by our ministry, don't just sit on the sideline but in, engage with us and help us to take the gospel around the world. We spend very little time raising money, but we do need your help. And if you'd like to give or partner with us, the easiest way to do it is to go to the website there, and there's a place where you can give via credit card or PayPal. You can even set up, if you would like, a monthly debit to become a monthly partner. You can also call the number on the screen, and someone will take your call. If you don't get an answer, leave a message. We'll return your call 
or you can send a check or money order to the address that will come on the screen. But do it today. God bless you, and thank you for joining us this week. I am excited to announce the release of my latest book titled The Great I Am. In this book, we will explore the seven times in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I am. When he uses that phrase, it is always in contrast to something from the Old Covenant. For instance, they thought Moses and the law was the door into the sheepfold, but Jesus said to them, I am the door. They thought that Israel was the true vine, but Jesus said to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. As you read the pages of this book, you will discover that Jesus removed the covenant of death and replaced it with the covenant of life. Get your copy of the book, The Great I Am, today.